Hey, podcast listeners, uh, a few years ago, well, when we, when we when the station moved from Uppsala College to Jersey City, we bought this big building, and on the first floor of the building was a real estate office, and as their business got worse and worse, at first they kind of bargained with us, they kind of paid half the rent and only used half the space and half the parking places, and then eventually it was like one desk, and then eventually they kind of went out of business. So we didn't know what to do with that ground floor space, and eventually we've turned it into something called Monty Hall, as our building is on Montgomery Street, so our our music hall is called Monty Hall, and it's we're using it now for to present films and uh, you know live mu- music performances and all kinds of any kind of performance really, and it's really interesting. It's uh, small, it's intimate. The sound is good. Uh, we can video things and put them up on the web. Uh, it's it's awesome. And there's a showing this Friday of this documentary uh, about Boyce uh, and Hart. And uh, that is why Bobby Hart is calling in today. You may remember in March of 2014, just about a year ago, I spoke at length all about uh, Bobby Hart and his life. So I'm not rerunning that one here. This is a shorter interview. We cover a few things we didn't cover that first time. And there are things that I learned reading his new book. You'll hear about that during the interview. And then just as a podcast bonus, after this Bobby Hart interview is over, you'll hear my Mickey Dolan's interview from 2012. It's also not that old, but you can turn it off if you've already heard it. Uh, so we'll hear from Bobby Hart from uh, just this week. And then you'll hear the uh, introduction to the uh, Mickey Dolan, the original introduction to the original time I aired the Mickey Dolan's podcast from 2012. Uh, and if you're still interested, you can go to WFMU.org slash Michael and listen to my uh, March 2014 Bobby Hart interview. I think that's clear. Uh, thanks for listening. Hope you're uh, doing well and talk to you soon. Let's sit talk about each other's feelings tonight.
gotta have the key change at the end. You know, you gotta have. It's like this is like this is why I love these records because they're just their kitchen sink. You know, there's like whatever stop can be pulled out to to put more hooks into the song will be used. And you know, these records are just they just don't make records like this anymore. Of course, uh, b- uh, Boyce and Hart there, and Bobby Hart joins us on the telephone. Welcome back to the program, and good morning, Bobby Hart. Good morning, How are you, Michael? Great to be here. Uh, you've got a brand new book just came out called uh, Psychedelic Bubblegum: Boyce and Hart, The Monkeys, and Turning Mayhem into Miracles, and uh, you've got this movie out, which is screening right here at WFMU's Monty Hall on Friday, Boyce and Hart, the guys who wrote them. There's a lot going on, but it started so early. Uh, The book tells... I'm going to let you talk soon. Don't worry. Uh, the the book tells this amazing story of this kid from a small town trying to distinguish himself, literally dropped off at the corner of Hollywood and Vine at age 18 with $50. And this is the part that kind of gets me with really no connections. You know, you didn't. You, and yet uh, you're making records, uh, you know, just a couple months almost after that. It's an amazing I, story. I didn't even have the dream when I got dropped off on the corner. I thought I was coming to go to disc jockey school and be like you. But... I got I got sidetracked within a couple of months by a little sign on the recording studio that said, "Come in and see what your voice your voice sounds like, not your voice, your voice." And uh, and I all of a sudden shifted and decided, "Hey, I can be a, a rock and roll star." <laughs> well, we heard that song earlier. Uh, Too many teardrops. One of your earlier works. Oh, but it's such a you know such a again a full production and you know there's backgrounds and there's that melodica. I, su- I think it's a melodica on there, and yeah. it's a, it's a big record. I mean, it's a, you can tell. It was was everybody just going for it in L.A. at that time? I mean, it seems like rock and roll was still sort of this new thing, and nobody knew how to how to grab the brass ring. Sort of. It was the infancy of rock and roll, and it was a big change because they had. There had been like two, three or four record companies. That was it, just like it is now. And then when rock and roll came in, everybody and their brothers started a little independent label, and they'd do great until they had a hit, and then then they'd spend uh, all this money to press the records, and 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 then distributors wouldn't pay them, and they'd go out of business. But else would pop up in the same spot. Uh, I want You spoke with Joe Belock earlier in the week, and yeah. folks can check the uh, the archives for that. And you and I spoke at length uh, just a couple of years ago. Yep. When the this the first cut of this movie was playing, and now it's the final cut, and like I said, it's playing Friday at Monty Hall, and I th- I think it will sell out, and I advise folks to get tickets right now, and there's a link on the wfmu.org page where they can uh, buy tickets for that. Uh, yeah, so, come on and see it. It's the only it's the only opportunity to see it. It's not released yet. It's just just a preview for for you guys. And you'll be there uh, answering questions and stuff like that, and maybe signing some. I'll re- be signing records. some books that night. So come down and uh, and grab a, a copy of a psychedelic bubblegum. Yeah, it's a really interesting record and it's a book and it's again it's one of those books where you don't really hold back although i have to say there's not too much you're one of the few guys who did not go drug crazy or drink crazy i think in the whole book you take one tablet of drugs and have one alcoholic drink (laughs) in the entire book thank god you know some some of the uh, some of our contemporaries didn't make it through those those troubled waters and i just feel uh, fortunate I mean, you were the only sober guy in the room a lot of the time, <laughs> uh, you know, especially with the monkeys. I think you know, it's a, it's a the monkeys are, are uh, well, they're all they're still standing except for Davy. God bless him, and uh, and it wasn't because of drugs. Yeah, he left us. Yeah, you you talk about uh, your work with the monkeys. Mike Nesmith comes off as not a jerk, but as like oh. Uh, you know, well, sort of a jerk. I don't know. It, you, he <laughs> come, your words, not mine. Yes, they're my. Yeah, you 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 don't say that. Uh, but he comes off as a guy who needs to kind of needle, put his his needle in everything, <laughs> even when it's against his own best interest. Like he can't help himself. 
Well, you know, he, I, don't, I don't blame him. There was, you know, it was two guys, two actors who had learned how to become musicians, two musicians who had learned how to become actors. He was one of the musicians, and he wanted to have more of a say about the music. And of course, it wasn't set up that way. Yeah. So it was a, it was a, you know, it, it was a little push, pushback from the beginning. The book tells sort of the struggle, the many struggles over the monkeys' music. And one thing that I did not know was that you guys wrote these great songs, but. I guess it's Don Kirshner felt like you just hadn't earned your producer stripes, so he actually got Mickey Most to try to record uh, some monkey stuff, and he got Snuff Garrett to try to do it, and he got uh, Goffin and King to try to do it, and they all literally made recordings that just didn't work, and they finally went back to you guys. I had no idea of that stuff, because all those three teams of people have made some amazing pop records. They had. They were great. They were the greatest uh, record producers of our day at that time. The difference was that we'd been working on the project for almost a year, and we had done thought of nothing else, eating and sleeping the monkeys' new project and what it should sound like and what it should look like and stocking uh, songs, getting ready. And then when he took us off the project, it was devastating, but we hung in. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, they they had to come crawling back to you. Uh, there is something in, you know, I've been listening to a lot of the Boyce and Hart records, and in some ways they are better produced than the Monkees. There's like a, you know, there's just such a, there's, there's, they're so arranged, you know. There's there's all these dynamics in the record, and all these instruments coming in and out, and parts and vocal parts, uh, you know. And it sounds like this is really sort of what the monkeys could have been if you guys could have made all of the decisions. You know, it kind of gives me an insight as to what's missing almost from the monkeys' records. Tommy and I were learning on the job. You know, we had, we learned from doing demo records, and and we got pretty good. And then we got the got our big break with the monkeys, and by the time we were doing voice and heart doing ourselves as artists uh, maybe we're we were getting a little better owning our craft yeah uh they're just there's amazing amazing records like uh, that one we just heard just so huge and they're huge in a way that records just aren't today uh, I, I you know just they're great uh one of the, the things you know you, you got married real young to your high school sweetheart you had two kids and you were juggling all these things and one of the things i did not know about your past at all that i learned in this book psychedelic bubblegum is that you were you worked in in Vegas with Teddy Randazzo, and you worked in sort of the clubs in L.A. and in the Valley yep. during, during that sort of, you know, the Johnny Rivers model of play from, you know, whatever, 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, what was that like? I mean, that, you know, you have this idea that it was just the, you know, the most electric thing ever with the girls and the, the go-go and everybody, the teenagers, claiming their culture. What was those sets like? Yeah, it was that time. It was everything was shifting uh, in, in L.A., especially was the forefront of it, the the West Coast, in particular, and it was great times with the, with the twist uh, craze, and with the and then with the harder music was starting to come in with the Doors and the Leaves and those guys. It was fun times, and uh, I thought, well, this is this is what show business is all about. But I soon realized that uh, I could play those clubs the rest of my life and still be looking for my next paycheck the following week to pay the rent. And Tommy was right to convince me to come back to New York, back from New York to and off the road. And join him at Screen Gems and write songs. Hmm. You had written some, some. You had co-written and written some hits, and you'd made your own records. And you, you had some publishing deals where you were making like fifty bucks a month <laughs> or a hundred bucks a month. And uh, and so I guess going out and working, you have two kids. You, you got to go out there and work. Uh, you mostly played the the B three, the Hammond organ. So, you, how many songs in a night would you play? How many different songs? Well, we, like you said, we did five hours, and, uh, uh-uh. and so in an hour you'd, we'd, we'd get uh, you know ten or fifteen minutes off during each each hour, take a break, 
break for the cause, you know, pause for the cause. We had all the raps down, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I suppose that we played. We must have played uh, about uh, twelve or fourteen songs every hour. So you know, I don't know to add it up. I guess. Yeah. Is there? Do you have any recordings of of that of those days? Because you know. That- no, I remember a guy who uh, an, a, a scout from a record company came in one night and he said, "Oh, this, this sounds good. Let me just bring my tape recorder in." And so he, when he brings the recorder in. Our guitar player says, I'm not going to play this set. I can't just record my <laughs> my licks. <laughs> he didn't want to have his licks stolen? He took his recorder back out to the car. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, I, because I guess in some ways it did seem so disposable. You're playing five hours a night. How precious can it be? But I'd love to hear one, you know, you were there type of moment. Well, we kind of, because we did get uh, those one-off record uh, single releases, that, and there are some of those things out there that we did with, with the band. I uh, basically had the same band from it was Teddy, Teddy's band that uh, Teddy Mendazzo and we'd play uh, 12 weeks on 12 weeks off in, in Vegas and other places and when we weren't working with him in between we'd come to LA and we'd work as a as a quartet with me singing and playing the, the organ yeah just just uh, yeah that's one of the things that, uh, in this book is that you you are a hard worker you know I mean that's part of part of it you know you just worked a lot you you didn't say no a lot and you tried uh, to, to fulfill what people needed and you know you're in LA where people need music for stuff all the time like the days of our lives theme which was on the air for 50 years you know which which Still going knock, yeah, knock on wood amazing so how does publishing work let's just talk about that briefly you write a song and you get paid for 50 years is that how it works well, you get paid from a couple of sources. One, one is what, for every record that sells. Now, these these, these days, uh, of course, everybody thinks music should be free, and <laughs> hardly are records selling, and so it's not the same. But in those days, you would, it's a it's a statutory rate set by Congress, and uh, in those days, we were getting a penny, <laughs> and that penny would be split to half to the publisher, and then the, the half a penny would go split between the writers. Wow. And then, but the second way is you get paid from what they call performance rights. Uh, organizations and they pay, they collect money every time a record's played uh, on television or in the movies. And then the third source is if you get it in a movie, then that's a sync fee and that's like a lump sum thing, a movie or a commercial, and that's that comes in handy. Nice. And your records really are part of that soundtrack of the 60s, so whenever anybody wants to make a movie taking place in the 60s, uh, you know, there's a lot of co-writes uh, of yours in being used today. You know, we, I mean, we uh, we get those wonderful surprises from time to time. In fact, uh, the, the new Disney Nature movie called Monkey Kingdom is out, and they use the monkeys theme. Uh, not only in the, they paid more actually to use it in the in the trailer for the movie, than they, but they also used it in the opening of the movie. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's a great, I mean, is the catchiest song ever written, perhaps. So. <laughs> yeah, it, it probably is the most lucrative song, yeah. Other than Days of Our Lives, which plays five days a week, and that's and that's national network TV, so that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's, oh, that's amazing, yeah. Uh, at one point in the book, you say that Boyce and Hart became a runaway train. Sort of, you, you, you stopped working with the monkeys, and you guys decided, let's do our own thing for real. And then you say it became a runaway train quickly. What happened? Well, I think any any group that gets really popular quickly, it goes through this, but we were doing not only uh, records for other people producing, but we were producing our own records, going on the road, doing the concerts, doing the press, doing the interviews, doing the sound checks, doing the, you know, it just, it becomes... Uh, a whirl in your mind, and you just, uh, after a while, it takes a toll on the nervous system. I think there's a famous quote 
by uh, by George Harrison, who said that the fans gave us their love and we gave them our nervous system. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I can. Ima- I mean, I can sort of imagine. Uh, let me remind folks that uh, we're talking to Bobby Hart here, author of this new book called "Psychedelic Bubblegum: Voice and Heart, the Monkeys, and, Tr- and Turning Mayhem into Miracles." And he'll also be right here at WFMU's Monty Hall this Friday for a screening of "Voice and Heart." The guys who wrote him, along with, I believe, the director and uh, Joe Belock, will be there and will be answering some questions from folks. So I recommend. Uh, yeah, come out. It'll be a fun night. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you did this. There's a great chapter in the book. Again, something I did. Didn't know, and I'm you know I'm I'm leaving out huge swaths of the book because I, I think folks will really enjoy uh, reading it. Where you you find a new very dynamic manager, and you're told by people you trust, don't work with this guy. Yeah. it won't work out, yeah. and he steals all your money. <laughs> I mean, it's like the textbook. He he actually sort of delivers in the beginning. Oh, a, he delivered great. A, amazing he made deals yeah. that nobody else could have made, including the people that were warning us not to go with him. And we had a great run with him for about a year, a new year and a half. And uh, he, had, he had more, you know, intricate visions for our careers than even we did. And he took us to places we never would have gone. So we, uh, there's no regrets. We knew what we were getting into. But, of course, when he, when he uh, got us the gig in, to open in the main room Flamingo Hotel in Vegas with Shaja Gabor, that was pretty cool. <laughs> but then he had this little gambling thing. So Yeah, well, it's very interesting because you're at this sort of turning point where you are now superstars, and you, you have a very critically uh, successful uh, week in Vegas, and you're about to extend that. And then this guy steals your money, and your partner, Tommy, says, that's it, I can't take it. And the runaway train sort of goes off the tracks at that time. Yeah, exactly, and that was the real loss, was, uh, it was you know breaking up the partnership. And, of course, the, the friendship survived, but uh, it was a little rough just... Pulling the pulling the brake on the on the speeding train, like you said. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you you worked immediately. You start you kept working, and you yeah. sort of over and over again in this book. You sort of put it all back together. You start working with the Partridge Family, and right. uh, you know all kinds of things. Uh, there's there's this book is not just a show business uh, book. It is also a book about your search for enlightenment and your search for happiness and your search for just to be calm and there's little uh, breaks in between some of the chapters the stepping stones through the potholes of life in which I, I see I can see that you're really trying hard to to give practical useful uh, tips without you know beating anybody over the head with uh, religion or some of the deeper things yeah uh, I wanted to show, you know it became almost an obligation you start to see when you're writing you don't you don't know notice while you're going through it and living your life but when you look back on it you see these patterns what I could have done better, what things worked for me. So I really felt, you know, I, I, I need to share this with others, anybody who can, who can learn from my mistakes and learn from what I, what I did right. So we did the little stepping stone pages and, uh, and shared uh, my spiritual journey. It's not going to be, everyone has their own unique journey, and, uh, but, but there are some parallels. And so, uh, you know, my life was saved when I met Paramahansa Yogananda, my, my guru, and that was just a, a turning point for me, and, and meditation has been the way for me. It may not be for everyone, but it's uh, at least I'm putting it out there. And is that a daily uh, practice for you? Yeah, it, it, yoga has just you know saved my life. That's that's how the nervous system survived. Hmm. That's 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 a quite a testimony, I, I, and it seems like yoga has helped you focus. I mean, focus I think is really one of the words in the book that. It's true. Concentration is so uh, is so important. Uh, perseverance, as you were talking about a, a few minutes ago, you got to keep. 
once you once you find your dream, you want to fine tune it as you go along, but you want to keep 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 doing it until it materializes, and that door, uh, that opportunity will open at some point. But you've got to be ready. You can't just say, "Oh, here it is. Uh, I'd like to do this." No, you got to be working at it. Mm. Uh, do you still write songs now? Yeah, I still write. Not not uh, as prolific as before because we work, were working on this on psychedelic bubblegum for uh, six years with my co-writer Glenn Ballantyne. And that's been taking our time now promoting it. So that's our focus now. Plus, uh, plus we're going to be going out and doing some some seminars and keynote speeches, kind of talking about those things that uh, you've just been mentioning. Hmm. Uh, one of the things in the book that's quite interesting is you talk about how, how you and Tommy would write songs, and literally you would write them walking down the street or sitting in the park or you know in a car on the way to pitch. Yeah. You know, uh, it was really uh, very. It sounds like having a co-writer in those situations is really important. Well, a lot of people, you know, the, most of the East Coast writers uh, that we were, were our contemporaries at that time, one wrote music, one wrote lyrics. We we had the advantage that we both wrote both. So our reason for being together was the fun we had, you know, so why not take advantage of it? And when, when we got signed to Screen Gems Columbia Music and came back to California, uh, you know, they were giving us $100 a week. Well, that was great. That paid our rent. We didn't have to worry about the day gig anymore. And uh, so we were, we were having a ball and, and being, I think that contributed to our creativity as well. Hmm. Uh, are there songs that are, for you, personal milestones where along the way you, you said, you know, this song is, is a giant step forward. It's not a baby step forward. It's something that really, you know, sometimes you just sort of get handed almost mystically a giant step forward. Are there songs that kind of... Well, I think the ones we've talked about, I think, uh, in the last train to Clarksville, uh, when the, the first Monkey single that was zooming up the charts before the show we even went on the air... Uh, Days of Our Lives, which has been so uh, lasting, and uh, songs like I Want to Be Free, which got recorded by so many other people, uh, that was kind of a meaningful song to us, because it was one of the few that we wrote, just because we felt like it one night, and not not as a, not as short order cooks as I used to call ourselves. (laughs) Or a project that was coming up. Yeah, it is very interesting because in the book there's a lot of descriptions of folks say we need a song like this, kid, and yeah. you always say we have one, and then you write it after the <laughs> yeah. after the fact. You know? well, Tommy Boyce was the consummate salesman, you know. So besides the fun that he was uh, to, to work with and to and to be a friend of, uh, he was a great salesman, and that's that was one of his. That was part of his style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, never say no. I guess that that helps. Uh, yeah. you know, one of the things, one of the few things you don't really talk about in the book is is how Tommy ended his. He took his own life, and it was it was it just something you just couldn't go there? Um, I, I allude to it because I don't want people people just assume well he was depressed. I don't think he was depressed. He he had had a, a medical thing, you know, an aneurysm in his brain that broke, and he, he never got his energy back from that. And they told him they would. Well, Inevitable, this will happen again. You'll probably be a vegetable. And so, of course, there's no excuse for that, you know. But it's kind of an understanding that could come with that. Yeah, so it's very heartbreaking, and for people close to him, I'm sure it was, yeah, it was. De- devastating. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, well, it's it's a really interesting book, and like I said, you, you know, just your honesty and uh, and that stuff should be applauded. I've read a lot of these books where people don't tell what really happened, and in this book, sort of seems like you're actually telling what really happened, uh, but but gently uh, and you know, not not in a sensational way, and uh, so so you get uh, points for that. It's called Psychedelic Bubblegum, Boys and Heart, The Monkeys, and Turning Mayhem into Miracles. And Bobby will be at WFMU with copies 
of the book this Friday night, uh, showing the movie. And like I said, I, I think folks should. It's a, it's a pretty small place with the seats, and uh, it probably will sell out. And I recommend folks get tickets right now over at WFMU.org. It's super interesting book, super interesting guy, and written so many songs. I mean, when you get into the like you said, the, I want to be free. You know, like a hundred people, uh, including you know. You know, uh, crooners, you know, people who are serious singers who sing who sing the American uh, songbook, sing yeah. that song. You know, sure. there's so many people, the Monkees and Fats Domino and Paul Revere and the Standells and Del Shannon and Jane the Americans and Chubby Checker and Little Anthony and Gary Luce, just, you know, and the list goes on and on. It's it's amazing. It really is kind of mind boggling. Is your mind blown <laughs> It, it, well, I'm just appreciative, and I look, I look back and just to see, you know, how, how things transpired. And like you said, a kid comes here, nothing in his pocket, and no contacts, and, and just uh, hanging in those six years and learning my craft, and uh, and then to see, look back on it all, it, it is pretty mind-boggling even to me. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but you seem to have your feet mostly on the ground, which is. Uh which is good. Uh, I've got this song queued up now called uh, Girl, I'm Out to Get You. It's one of my favorite Boys and Heart tracks. Tell me how, you know, do you remember how it was written, how it was recorded, anything about it? You know, uh, they, this, this was part of what we were doing, and, uh, and, and we've talked about it. We just we would go off and write these songs. Oftentimes, they, they were for projects. You know, Jane and the Americans is coming up uh, two weeks from now, and they need a song where we'd write something that sounded like Jane and the Americans. But when we got to, to the the monkeys and then boys and heart uh, we were pretty much just writing from our hearts and uh, and whatever was on our mind at that time it's kind of interesting to go full 180 from you know what you said short order cooks to trying to express yourself and send your own message yeah uh, out there yeah and so who's do we know who's playing on this record is it uh, your your regular band yeah our, our band but like i said it was teddy's band it was jerry, jerry mcgee and the cajuns the cajuns were larry taylor who later became a founding member of canned heat and then uh, billy lewis on drums he was a great studio player but when we got the monkeys project uh these guys had just come back to town so they were, had been in new york after working with teddy and we decided hey let's let's have a, a real band a band that we've worked with in clubs and other other venues uh for a couple of years now and it's going to sound like a like a band like a garage band instead of uh, the, the, the great session players which we used on almost all the other uh, projects but when we did boys and heart and we did the monkeys it was it was the candy store profits which formerly was Jerry McGee and the Cajuns. Yeah, and Jerry McGee was in the Ventures for years and years. Just an amazing sort of under, you know, when people sort of reel off that list of yep. uh, of session guitar players from L.A., they, don't, they usually don't uh, list him, and he's yep. he's mind-blowing. Yeah. Oh, he's a great guitar player. And then for the for the Monkees, for, for those for our projects, we added uh, Louis Sheldon, who went on to produce a ton of records for Seals and Croft and just became a great studio uh, sought-after guy after, after we had brought him in for the Monkees. And a guy named Wayne Irwin, because we were looking for somebody who could do feedback guitar and some of those psychedelic licks. Yeah. Well, it's amazing that a lot of those Monkees records have three guitars on them, yeah. yet everybody's playing a part, and it doesn't sound like, a, you know, a cacophony, you know. It's, uh... Yeah. No, they, they were, uh, we would go in a little rehearsal studios and rehearse these things, work out the, the arrangements before we'd go in the expensive studios, and we treated it like a band. Yeah. 
Uh, great stuff. Uh, let's hear, girl, I'm out to get you. Bobby Hart, thanks for taking a little bit of your morning to speak with us again. And I want to remind folks they've got archives of our longer conversation over at WFMU.org slash Michael. And Joe Belock's got an archive of his uh, conversation this week. Or you could have your own conversation with Bobby this Friday night at Monty Hall and pick up a copy of the new book. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Michael, it's been a pleasure. And see everybody Friday night. It's great. Thanks so much. I shan't forget the day we met my boat upset and I got wet. She offered me a blanket and some tea. Hey! Say, is that your clarinet? I bet we'd make a fine duet. Do you know Mozart's minuet in G? Maybe I could see you socially. Come with me back to my flat, it's late and I must feed my cat With that she smiled and tied her hat to me hey! On my Chinese mat we sat, commenced a chat of this and that And then I tried to kiss her tenderly And we began to play a symphony Red balloons, the afternoon was spinning tunes that sent the rhythm to my head. Hey! And just this afternoon, you pulled me from a dark lagoon and changed this tomb into a drawing room instead. I'm afraid I'm in above my head. Great Boys and Heart. Those records really are special records. Like I said, just the dynamics in them and the arrangement and the just the creativity, I guess, is what it comes down to. There's just a lot of creative, great ideas in every one of those records. And, it, you know, it goes back a little bit to, I think, I think they were definitely making albums. So last night, I'm just really getting ready for the final uh, bit of my research for the Mickey Dolan's interview. And I get an email from the publicist saying, I just want to let you know that yeah, the, this interview must be 50% about Mickey Dolenz's new album. You know, and I've gotten this kind of email before, and uh, so I, I emailed back saying, you know, I just can't do that. I cannot... <laughs> my audience does not want to hear 15 minutes about Mickey Dolenz's new album. I said, I'll mention it, I'll play some songs from it. It's, it's a fine... Uh, you know, it's, it's not an embarrassing project. It's It's just not what I do here. I don't have guests on so they can promo their new record, which is which is why I do a show here on WFMU and not somewhere else where I'd be forced to obey a publicist's commands. Anyway, I just thought you might want to know. I, I appreciate doing my show here and not somewhere else. So here is briefly touching on his new album and bookended by uh, songs from his new album. Uh, here's Mickey Dolan's. 
Watching the skirts, you start to float. Now you're in gear. Book for a show, I hope she goes. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. Yeah, there is Mickey Dolans from the brand new CD, which is called Remember. Mickey Dolans, welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm great. Thank you so much for playing that cut. Ah, you're welcome. Uh, you're a busy guy. You've always been a busy guy. You had a show last night at BB King's, and I understand it was recorded for perhaps a, a live album or something. Is that right? A live, live CD, yeah, yeah. You're a busy guy. Uh, the Monkees start a new tour in November. It ends right here in New York City at the Beacon Theater on December 2nd, but I want to start at the beginning, not at the end. 1950. 56. Oh, your parents were in show business. Your dad was an actor. He's been in a million old TV shows. Your mom was a singer, I think. 1956, you're 10 or 11. You're in a, a TV show called Circus Boy for three years. Your whole life has been in show business. You're still in show business today. You're still doing gigs. Does it get tiring? Is it in your blood? <laughs> Good question. I, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> I, I, as you say, I was in it. Uh, my, actually, my first screen test... I was six years old, hmm. and I and and I also have some prenatal work coming out on ultrasound. Oh, terrific! Yes, you're real. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, I just don't really know anything else, uh, to be honest. I, I had the, the one time I made a, a a career choice, I suppose, was after high school. I'd already done the series, and my parents wisely had taken me out of the business uh, for those uh, formative high school years. But after high school, I started doing some guest shots on TV, and my friend of mine said, you know, we should really get serious about, about a career and a life. So I started studying to be an architect, and I went to university, to college, to be an architect. Hmm. And um, I was going to, you know, I was going to be an architect, and if I couldn't make it as an architect, I was going to fall back on show business. <laughs> well, and then... And then I was in school when the monkey audition came along, and I'm not—I wasn't a fool. I knew the power of a, a television and a series, of course. So I, I um, uh, got out of school for about ten days to do the pilot. But then I went back to school because I knew we, I knew then, of course, that pilots don't always sell. <laughs> so yeah. I um, I went back to uh, back to school, and then when they when they did finally say we sold the pilot and we got an order for twenty six episodes, that's that's when I quit school. Uh, right before the monkeys, or I, at some point, you were, you sort of had your own bands. I think not everybody knows you played. Yeah. You were sort of a guitar player, singer in a rock band in your teen years, just before the monkeys. What were those bands oh. like? Where did they play? What kind of sets did they do? It was cover band, you know, it, it, uh, like everyone was doing back at the time. It, it was a cover band. There was one called Mickey and the One Nighters, and there was another one uh, called The Missing Links. Uh, ironically enough, and it, they were uh, cover bands. You know, we played uh, clubs or played, uh, you know, bar mitzvahs and and uh, cocktail lounges at bowling alleys. You know, doing doing the hits of the day. Huh. Uh, one of my one of my party pieces one of, one of my little uh, party pieces was uh, Johnny Be Good the Chuck Berry tune, yeah. and I still do it to this day. Uh, and the reason I do it is because it was my audition piece for the Monkees. 
uh, and that's the song that got me the gig. Um, and on the album, remember, um, if you get a chance, listen, because I do a, a quite different uh, a version that I came up with uh, to that to that wonderful old Chuck Berry tune. But yeah, I was in a, a couple of bands, and uh, when I auditioned for the Monkees, well, you had to be able to sing and play to get through the auditions. Um, and acting and improvising and uh, and some movement and some you know uh, scene study and uh, screen tests and uh, it was quite quite involved and that was my uh, my was my audition piece Johnny Be Good and um, I was a guitar player yeah a rhythm guitar player and uh, I, then they cast me and they said okay you're the drummer <laughs> I said okay <clears throat> where do I start. Um, uh, similar to what I had done in Circus Boy when I did that series, they said, you're going to ride an elephant. And I said, okay, where do I start? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I studied. I studied very hard as soon as the, the show was sold. I, I started studying. And I wasn't starting from square one because I, I was a musician. I had played Spanish uh, guitar. Actually, classical guitar was my first uh, my first foray into music. My father got me into that when I was like, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old, uh, playing, you know, uh, Spanish guitar, Segovia and, and, and Villalobos and stuff like Villalobos and stuff like that. And then I would start going to parties and bring my guitar and uh, in high school. And I noticed that the girls liked Kingston Trio better than Segovia. So I started playing, you know, Tom Dooley and, and stuff like that. And then the folk music sort of morphed into... Uh, into the rock and roll. Yeah, uh, people forget how huge the Kingston Trio really were a giant band in American, you know, pre-Beatles, of course, and then it was who, yeah. Uh, the the Monkees, around 1966, There's you, you mentioned the audition, and I put on the playlist on the webpage for today's program, there's a YouTube video, it's about 20 minutes long, of uh, screen tests from the Monkees, and you guys, yeah. some of it is you, the guys just asking you questions, and you're talking, and then some of it you're doing some scenes and horsing around, and it's very interesting, because there's eight guys, and you kind of work with, yeah. and the other guys are squares. And it's so obvious that the four that they picked were the exact right four. There was something, you know, shooting out of you guys, youth and bubbling. And I, I always wonder, you, you know, you, there's this idea that, the, especially in the plot of the monkeys episodes, often the monkeys are asked, are, are seen as misunderstood youth against the old people who are trying to keep the youth down. Is that something you felt at the time? Was that a palpable thing, this idea of, you know, the the older generation just doesn't understand what's going on? Oh, you mean off the set, not on the show? Yeah, yeah. Well, did it did it yeah, work? Well, there was that going on, but you know, to be frank, that happens. I think probably in every generation. If you were to ask eighteen, twenty-year-old kids today, do your parents understand you? Does the uh, society understand you? They would probably say no. I mean, that is that's quite typical. I think of every generation going back a couple of million years. <laughs> yeah, I think you're um, right. Yeah, so th- so that and the and the monkeys, amongst other, you know, the music uh, of the time, and but you know that that goes back. To, <clears throat> excuse me, that goes back to Elvis Presley, certainly before the monkeys. I mean, goodness, he was censored um, because of his uh, 
him speaking to his generation, Frank Sinatra before that. I mean, uh, it, it, uh, every every generation comes up against the the older generation. It comes up, you come up against your parents. It's almost it's almost biological that that happens. Yeah, you must sort of revolt a little bit. It's it's sort of healthy. Yeah. Uh, you sort of became the de facto lead singer. I mean, everybody sang lead, especially you and Davey, but you became sort of the most identified voice of the monkeys. And I think there is something about, I don't know, the timber of your voice. I don't know the technical term. It just sounds great coming out of out of the radio. Uh, I, I'm assuming when they cast everybody, th- that was not, that hadn't been decided until you started to go into the recording studio and figure out who would sing these great songs. That's a great, uh, that's a great observation. And frankly, I don't know exactly how it happened. Um, I have a feeling that it was a little more by default. First of all, like I said, everybody did have to sing and play to get uh, through the auditions. And and each one of us had, and still does have, a very, very distinct style. Mm. Um, Mike for, uh, Nesmith, for instance, great songwriter, obviously still had, did and still has a sort of country rock flavor. Peter was really into folk music and the blues. David, of course, had done Broadway, Oliver, and 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 definitely had that sort of Tony Newley uh, Broadway sound. And I was a screaming rock and roller. If you listen to some of the stuff that I uh, recorded uh, pre-Monkeys, if you ever get a chance, there's a couple of songs, one called Don't Do It and one called Huff Puff. Um, that was before the, the, the Monkeys. Um, with Glenn Campbell playing guitar wow. as part of part of the Wrecking Crew. Um, yeah, I was the screaming rock and roller, and um, I think that uh, the, the producers uh, early on, as you know the story, we had little or no control over anything to do with the music, uh, and uh, the producers and and the publishers would pick the tunes, and uh, I mean, and they're great tunes. Don't get me wrong, you know, Clarksville and and Stepping Stone, and I'm a Believer and Pleasant Valley Sunday. Yeah, I mean, these were all incredible tunes yeah. written by incredible songwriters. But um, uh, I distinctly remember that occasionally, uh, actually. M- more than occasionally, frequently, I would do a vocal on a song, and Davey would do a vocal on a song, and then sometimes Mike would do a vocal on the same song. Mm. And then I guess somebody up in, in some office building, <laughs> you know, on uh, off Sunset Boulevard, would sort of just pick pick the, the, the lead vocal that they thought would would resonate and would, would sell uh, copies. And, and it did end up more often than not uh, being me, I'm very grateful for that, but I, I, I'm not. But that's the only explanation I can give you. Yeah, very interesting. That when the first Monkeys record came out, the album spent 13 weeks at number one, stayed on the Billboard chart for 78 weeks. Pretty amazing. Uh, uh, I think the four you had all, the first four LPs, the first five LPs, I think were all top ten. Of course, I think uh, Last Train to Clarksville was a number one record. I'm a Believer, number one. A little bit you, a little bit me, number two. Pleasant Valley Sunday was number three. Daydream Believer, number one. Valerie's number. You guys had a tremendous amount of hits. Could you did you foresee any of this, or were you still thinking maybe the architecture? I'd better keep that in my back pocket. Or <laughs> you know, I, well, no, I, I figured by then. <laughs> I was pretty safe, <laughs> but but having said that, I still have a machine shop at home. I still build stuff. I'm still, it's a huge uh, uh, hobby, I guess, uh, of mine. Uh, no, I figured by by that time it was pretty um, uh, 
pretty well set in stone. However, having said that, I also knew that uh, a t- when a television series goes off the air, then you have to start looking around and, and considering other things, which I did. And I actually went to the other side of the camera. And um, uh, I, I moved to England uh, in the mid-70s, and I became a producer-director. <clears throat> I had always been sort of fascinated by that side of the of the camera. And I um, I, I just, you know, I kind of drifted towards that. I, I knew I wasn't going to get any serious acting jobs after the monkeys. In fact, I went to a couple of interviews after the series went off the air and and they said, we don't need, any, what are you doing here? We don't need any drummers. <laughs> <laughs> but I was up for, for instance, I was down to me and Henry Winkler for the Fonz. How interesting. And, I, and, and I'm so glad he got it, of course, because he was the perfect Fonz. But he tells the story that he came to the uh, uh, audition, the interview, and he saw me sitting in the waiting room and he thought, oh, Mickey Dolan's is here, I'm never going to get this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I read that the Monkeys episodes were filmed in three days per episode. Is that true? Yes. All, that... uh, all, all series, all, all 30-minute sitcoms of that era were filmed in three days. Uh, I Dream a Genie, Bewitched, uh, Flying Nun, uh, uh, whatever. As a director... Uh, yeah, that, that was the, the economics of it. You had to do it in three days. Yes, it's incredibly fast. And the studio atmosphere at that time, I mean, you're, you're making personal appearances, you're filming these TV shows, and you're in the studio making... Uh, you know, the Monkees put out a lot of music in a short time, an incredible mm. amount of music. You guys yeah. must have been going crazy. I mean, you were still 21 years old or something. It's, it, was, it must have been a crazy life. Well, it was an intense life, and it was a lot of work. Um, and, uh, un- you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, there wasn't a whole lot of time to party. Mm. So <laughs> I do remember the 60s, <laughs> yeah. because I was, wor- I was working uh, yeah. uh, eight- 18 hours a day. I mean, like you say, the, the normal filming day would have been 10 hours or, or so, because you had to get there for makeup and wardrobe. And then after that, we would go in the studio, and at times... Uh, at night recording, I would do two or three lead vocals in one night because yeah. uh, they needed so much material for the show. And then on the weekends, we immediately started rehearsing. Uh, and any spare moment we had, we started rehearsing for the uh, upcoming tours that were being booked. Hmm. Uh, let me remind folks, this is WFMU, and we're talking to Mickey Dolan's... Uh, you know, you're a busy guy. You are a children's book author. You are a, a director, an actor, a stage actor. But you are playing with the monkeys on and off your whole life. And it seems like, you know, every time the monkeys kind of just get a little bit out of our consciousness, there's another explosion. The next generation basically, uh, you know... Discovers the monkeys, and then the previous generation rediscovers. Oh yes, the monkeys, of course. You do a lot of voiceovers. I believe you're the the voice of the fabric softener bear. Is that right? <laughs> I was, yeah. A couple of years ago, Snuggles the bear. <laughs> and of course, you you were my competition here, and uh, you worked at uh, CBS <laughs> FM in 2005 for 100 shows before they made that wonderful decision to uh, change to the Jack format. That was amazing, but it was fun. That must have been fun being on the air every morning in you know New York City of all places. I loved it. I had a great time. It was tough, boy. I'll tell you, people don't realize what a tough job you guys have. Uh, it's it's really uh, it, it really takes a lot of focus, a lot of concentration. I mean, you only have one of the the senses of the five senses to work with, and that's your your voice and and the audio. And it's very demanding and 
and especially at that time in the morning. <laughs> oh, please stop, Mickey, please, please. I'm not that good. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, people don't realize how tough it is. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, Davy Jones passed away February 2012. Davy Jones in uh, February 2012. Yeah. Uh, that must have, of course, been a surprise. I mean, and I assume your relationship with Davy is like a brother in every way. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's exactly the way I describe it. It's like losing a sibling. You know, after you spend that much time with a, with a uh, that uh, when you spend that much time with uh, with someone over the years, uh, and you go through that kind of a, a roller coaster ride, um, yeah, the closest thing I can describe it is a sibling. I probably spent more time with him, uh, you know, than I did some of my siblings. So because I left home at you know eighteen, yeah. and um, we we kind of grew up, to get, grew up together, you know, we had similar backgrounds because of the child star thing. Uh, also, he um, and I both got married about the same time, had children about the same time, and so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's not something I, I can say I'll ever uh, totally get over. I mean, you just, life has to move on, but he will be sorely missed, and in the upcoming Monkey uh, Tour, he will be definitely remembered, uh, and uh, there will be an homage and tribute to him. Yeah, the monkeys go back and hit the road, and this time Mike is back with the band for the first time, really touring with the band for the first time since the original monkeys, I'm guessing, and uh, it's kind of a, well, not, a big deal. Uh, no, not, not, not exactly, and uh, he did come on stage with us a few times over the years as, as sort of a guest thing, uh, like at the Greek Theater or something, but in 97, um, we, we recorded an album called Justice, uh, all four of us, and Mike joined us for a, a tour of the UK, a huh. uh, very successful tour of the UK. So it's been about 15 years, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's been wonderful. We were rehearsing last, uh, for the whole for the last month, actually, uh, Pete, just Peter and Michael and I uh, getting tight and, and, and re- revisiting some of his material. We've done a lot of his material over the years, but of course I would sing it or David or Peter would sing it, and it's been wonderful hearing him sing some of his original tunes. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. It is a new uh, tour. It starts in November and it ends in New York City at the Beacon Theater on December 2nd. And I've put a link to the Monkeys website. I've put a, a link to Mickey's website, which is mickeydolans.com, on the playlist for today's program. And, uh, you know, I there's always... It's, there's a... I, I'm trying to get to it. There's a, a, something about the monkeys' music that makes it fun and happy and sort of a, a timeless thing. And it must be great to sort of be a part of something that people just love. It's just as a strange, you know, it's not a down thing. It's a completely up thing. Yeah, it, it's true. And, and that uh, there's a lot of elements that account for that. And l- we've got to start with the most important one in my mind, and that is the songwriters. We were blessed. I was blessed to have some of the greatest songwriters ever writing for me out of the Brill Building, because that was part of Screen Gems Publishing Music, which was the uh, sister company of the television production uh, uh, company. And so I had Carol King and Jerry Goffin. I had Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. I had Neil Diamond. I had David Gates. I had uh, uh, 
you know, Paul Williams. Uh, Man in um, Wheel. Uh, Harry Nielsen, yeah. Diane Hildebrand, Carol Bayer Sager. I mean... Harry Nielsen, Chip Douglas. Harry Nielsen, who had his first hit with the Monkees and then became a, a very, very dear friend. And, of course, his song Remember is the title track of my new CD, Plug, Plug, Plug. <laughs> because I was there when he wrote it. And, um, uh. in fact, all, all the songs on the new CD uh, are, are songs that... that uh, had some sort of an import in my life, some sort of a, a reason. They're all they all have a reason to be there. And if you had a chance to look at the liner notes, you'll see. And I mentioned just mentioned David Gates, for instance. Uh, he offered me the diary uh, towards the tail end of the Monkey recordings, and I turned it down because I didn't think I should be doing a ballad. A stupid fool that I was. Because <laughs> a couple of years later, he comes out with the bread hit, um, and I do that on the new CD. Remember. Uh, as one of my should have done songs. <laughs> you know, you were talking about how uh, the new uh, record uh, has a new version of Johnny Be Good, and we're going to play that in just a minute. But you, I want to ask you if you could take a time machine and go back in time. There's that moment where the, where the monkeys sort of a, a little bit of a backlash came, and I think mostly Peter and Mike wanted to take more control musically of what was going on. And you just talked about, you, you gave a little tribute to all those amazing songwriters and what incredible timing and luck it is to have, you know, song after song after song coming your way. I mean, and people must have been, you know, put, you know, coming to you first, first choice of all these great songs because they yeah. knew they were going to get on television. They were, writing, they were writing them specifically for me. Would you go back in a time machine and, 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 try to keep the, those great songs flowing and not have gotten, or, you know, when the band took control of their own music, would you have not done that? No, probably not. Um, uh, you know, that's a good question. It's a bit moot because you can't go back and change history. That's just the way it sort of came down. Um, uh, as you say, it, uh, it was Mike mainly that was uh, spearheading the, Palace Revolt, and <laughs> and it was mainly because, you know, he, he had offered up his, some of his songs. Um, uh, uh, in fact, in my show, I told the story of him coming uh, up to the producers with some of his material and then saying, you know, this is just not right for the monkeys, sorry, and they, and they took a pass. And he, this is him telling me this story. And so one of the songs I do in my show, I introduce it, and I say this is the song that the Monkey Producers passed on, and Mike gave it to this young up-and-girl singer in Los Angeles at the time named Linda Ronstadt, and we're going to do it now. It's called Different Drum. <laughs> um, so I think Mike might have been frustrated that, that they didn't appreciate or didn't want to yeah. you know, record his stuff, and Peter may be the same. I was not a songwriter at the time, so I was not as concerned. But it wasn't just about that. It was just about we had nothing to say about anything. Not the songs, not who was writing them, not how they were recorded or what was released, or even the album cover, mm. you know, or the liner notes. You know, we just had absolutely nothing to say about it. And so that's really what it was all about. It's just they were putting our names on the album, and we we kind of felt, well, we, we ought to have some input here. Yeah, we're not <laughs> the Archies. We're not a cartoon character. It's a very well, odd, exactly. odd position to be in. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, like, like I say, those, those original songs, you know, are just are just timeless. And I mean, I I just did a tribute album to Carol King uh, uh, two years ago, a King for a Day, because she's still one of my favorite writers. Yeah. I do all her material in my show all the time. I just did a a cover of Sometime in the Morning, which she wrote again. Uh, I did it on Remember, 
because yes. uh, it's such a huge uh, song for me. I, I, I did uh, Neil Diamond's I'm a Believer again, if you listen, in sort of an Everly Brothers vibe. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this I new- had a great respect and, and love for those songs. This new record is called Remember. It's available at MickeyDolans.com, and it sort of rearranges a lot of songs you think you know, and you've kind of turned them... And in some ways, it's very monkey-ish. You know, like I was thinking, if the monkeys recorded Johnny Be Good, they, they would have messed with it a little bit. They wouldn't have let it, they wouldn't have just done a straight-up bar band version of it. And uh, I think your version, it took me a few listens before I sort of really heard the kind of, the goofball vibe in it, the kind of, that it makes a lot of sense to do what you did to the song. And we're going to hear it in a minute. But first, I want to know, what is next beside uh, Monkey's Tour? It seems like you never stop. You're in your 60s, <laughs> but you are not ready to stop. You've got a machine shop in your house, whatever that is. I mean, you're you're obviously a crazy person. What is next for you? <laughs> well, you know, I just, I, I, I like keeping busy. My, my You know, moving target's harder to hit. Hmm. And um, my dad always told me, you know, he said, you can't sit around and wait for the phone to ring. So I don't. And, um, you know, by this time, I've I've been in virtually every aspect of the business. And so I guess I'm either a dilettante or a renaissance man, depending on your your definition of the terms. Um, And I just like keeping busy. And I do have lots of other interests. One of my big... um, my, my, my big interest right now is continuing in in the field of musical theater. Uh, I got into it rather late in life, and I just love it. I started out by doing Greece, the national tour of Greece, and on Broadway, and then I did, uh, let's see, I did Aida on Broadway in the tour, and then Pippin, and then uh, I just uh, did a year over in England doing Hairspray. I'm doing Hairspray in January with the Philharmonic Orchestras of uh, Baltimore and Indianapolis doing a Philharmonic version of Hairspray. And then I've been offered another uh, show in, uh, in the UK and possibly another one here on on Broadway. I love doing musical theater. I, I, I just really am attracted to it. And in a funny way, if you look back, the Monkeys TV show was a little bit of musical theater on television, like an old Marx Brothers movie. Mm. In fact, it was John Lennon of the Beatles who made that first comparison. He said the monkeys are like the Monks Brothers. And it's true, the monkeys was like this little musical theater, half-hour Marx Brothers movie with singing and dancing and and screwing around and comedy and stuff like that. So musical theater is high on my my agenda of stuff to do. That's what's next. All right. We will see you uh, Beacon Theater December 2nd here in New York City. And, uh, Excellent. And good luck with Remember. It's a sweet album. Let's hear uh, Johnny Be Good. Anything else we need to hear to know about this recording before we uh, play, <laughs> play it? Wow. Well, uh, I, I re-envision a couple of things. Randy Skaskett, of course, which was mm-hmm. a big hit over in England, uh, uh, the original. Um, uh, uh, old-fashioned love song Paul Williams gave me, and I didn't get it uh, done in time, so Three Dog Night ripped, <laughs> ripped it out from under my feet. Uh, that was another good one. I love Johnny Be Good, uh, you know, so uh, take a listen to that and, and, and tell me what you think. All right, Mickey Dillons, thank you so much for joining us. I know you got to catch a plane, so we will uh, yep. talk to you again one of these days. Thank, thank, you, thank you, sir. Sure. Thank you. Like a rhythm that broke 